got your Bibles, turn, if you will, to uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and we're going to look at our third installment. And by the way, um, I will not be happy if my wife Ruth goes in our closet and gets all the toys and gives them away. But if you're giving big boy toys away, uh, I'm uh, the office uh, down the hall a bit, and so you just come down and see me. I'm talking like... Um, you know, uh, SUV, not uh, SUVs, but you know, the ATV things, the four-wheelers and snowmobiles. Now you can keep the snowmobiles. I'm going for nice weather like you. Hey, let's stand together and uh, let's read this text. And uh, this is what it says. This is First John, uh, sorry, yeah, First John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It says, my little children, my little children, I am writing these words to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. And whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not him, not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new command, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new command that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother or sister is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light, and in him or her there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he or she is going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. Let's pray together. Father, again, we pause to thank you and praise you for your love. Lord, not that we loved you, but that you loved us first. And because of that, we are your sons and we are your daughters. And we thank you for the work that you've accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, all that you've done in Jesus is possible. It is applicable. It's available in my life, in our lives. And we are grateful and thankful. And now we pray that the same Holy Spirit would work in us and through us, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend. And as we go out from this place, Lord, that that same Holy Spirit would help us to live out meaningfully and tangibly, physically, what it means to be Christ followers. We love you. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, many of us probably know that when the Bible was originally written, it was not written with chapters and verses. Matter of fact, this is what the Bible actually looked like. This is the New Testament as it was originally 
written. How many of us would be able to separate this into chapters and verses? Well, the Old Testament was actually uh, put into chapters and verses by a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Nathan, and that was around the 15th century. And then Stephen Langdon, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century, actually translated or rather put what we commonly use today and know today as chapters and verses um, in the New Testament, and that's what we enjoy. Now, this is the most familiar text in, in the entire New Testament. Anybody know what it is? It's John 3.16. Anybody want to read it? I probably thought so. Now, I have said all of that to say this. It is generally agreed that the first two verses in the text that we just read a moment ago, or that I read to you, actually belong to the first chapter of 1 John, and they are a continuation and a conclusion of John, 1 John chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses that text. Now, in our text today that we read, John reminds us of whose we are and who we are. He says, my little children. And my little children is John's term of endearment for the people that he is writing to. And it occurs seven times in the book of 1 John. And the words, my little children, actually appear three times in chapter 2. And we'll look at that further next week. The only other place in the New Testament that these words are actually used are by Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 33. And so we can imagine that John heard this expression of tender affection from Jesus, and now in his old age, it has become a favorite term for him as a spiritual father of those that he is writing to. He reminds them then, and us today also, about sin. Now put your seatbelt on because this may come as a little bit of a surprise. That we are actually going to sin. He says, my little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But John knows himself. John knows the people that he is writing to. And we know ourselves, don't we? We're not surprised at all about the fact that we're going to actually commit sin. Because we understand that people have not changed from John's time even down to our time. So John is aware, as we are, of the possibility and the probability that they then and we, you and I today, that we are actually going to commit sin. And that's why John uses the plural pronoun we because he is fully aware of his own need and our need. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. John reminds us that Jesus is on our side. Now that's good news, right? That Jesus is on our side. He says, now if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, the word advocate comes from the Greek word parakletos and it is actually, we use the word paraclete. Now, for some of us in the room, or some of us watching online, 
You may never have heard that word before, paraclete, but others of us are probably, some of us may be more familiar with that term. The term paraclete literally means somebody who comes alongside us to help us. It is mostly used of the Holy Spirit by Jesus in John chapter 13, 14, and 15. But in our text, John uses it to describe what Jesus does for us. What he does for you and what he does for me. So Jesus has and will come to our defense. That Jesus has been our defense attorney, and he will be and continue to be our defense attorney on the basis of two qualifications. The first is the effectiveness of what Jesus does for us is guaranteed on the basis that he is a righteous person, that he's righteous. And secondly, on the basis of his work, that John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for ours, for the sins of the whole world. Now, here is another word that some of us may or may not be familiar with, propitiation. It's interesting that in the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, it translates this text in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, this way. It says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Now again, we may not be or we may be familiar with this word atonement. So let me, if you will, explain both of them. Now, we all know that Jesus Christ in his suffering and his death, which we call the crucifixion, is also another expression of what we call the atonement. What Jesus did in his suffering and death and crucifixion on the cross is called the atonement. If we break it down, it makes more sense like this, at one minute. Now let me say this. On the one hand, on the one side, are the just and the holy demands of a holy God that have been violated by our sin, by your sin and my sin, and not just ours, but the sins of the whole world. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand is how these demands, these holy and just demands of God are actually resolved. Somebody has to pay. And so when John says in verse 2 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he is telling us that by Jesus' life, suffering, and death, his crucifixion, God through Jesus Christ did at least two things. For us who were separated from God, separated from God, and because of our sin, Jesus' suffering, death, and crucifixion was an atonement bringing together God and us. Bringing together God and you. Bringing together God and me. That we are at one with God 
And because of Jesus Christ, God is at one with me. Now, propitiation, which is a big word, means atonement. It's the same word. But propitiation also means satisfied. Satisfied. Jesus, by his death, And his suffering, the crucifixion, satisfied the just and holy demands of a holy God on our behalf. We often say that Jesus' life, death, is a substitution for ours. That Jesus died in my place, Jesus died in your place. His death instead of our death. Now... Allow me to explain it just a little bit further. Once a year, every year, the Jews commemorate the Day of Atonement. It happens in September. In 2020, it was on September the 27th, the day after my birthday. Remember that. Now, In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement originally was the one and the one and only day of the year that one and only one person, the Jewish high priest, was allowed to go into the most sacred room in the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. Now, He did not go empty-handed into this sacred room. He carried with him a bowl of blood. Yes, a bowl of blood from a bowl that he had sacrificed earlier. And as he comes into the Holy of Holies, there is this piece of furniture, what we call the Ark of the Covenant, that represents the presence of God, that represents this holy God. And seven times the Jewish high priest, once a year, goes in and dips his finger in the bowl of blood and he sprinkles it against the Ark of the Covenant seven times on the Day of Atonement. Now, if God is satisfied, if God is propitiated then the high priest's offering is accepted and he lives to tell about it. But if God is not satisfied, if God is not propitiated by the high priest's sacrifice and offering, then the high priest dropped dead. So serious was this that the high priest wore bells along the bottom of his clothes. So that when he went into this sacred room in the temple, this holy of holies, as he's moving around, the people can hear the bells ringing. And they know that, hey, the high priest is still alive because we hear the bells. And that means that he and us are forgiven. But, legend tells us that the high priest also had a rope tied around his ankle. Because if God is not satisfied and God is not propitiated by the high priest's sacrifice and offering, then the high priest dropped dead and the people who were not allowed into this sacred room pulled out his dead body by the rope. 
But if the high priest's offering was accepted, God's judgment was turned into a mercy seat. And so, when we fast forward to Jesus, we understand that God's just and holy demands were satisfied, propitiated, by Jesus' sacrifice in his death, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted and God is satisfied. Now, there's also this. What is referred to by us as the Day of Atonement is referred to in Hebrew by the Jews as Yom Kippur. Same day, same event, the Hebrew for the English, Yom Kippur. Now, the word Kippur originates early in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 4, but chapter 6, verse 14, God's instructions to Moses, rather, God's instructions to Noah are these. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Pitch comes from the word kapoor. So Noah took pitch, and smeared it on the wood to seal the wood, and also to seal the cracks between the planks in the ark to make the ark waterproof. It was a seal. It was an adhesive that connected one plank with the other plank. It's called atonement. Atonement. Pitch, which comes from the word kapoor, means to cover, to expiate, to condone, to cancel, to appease, to make atonement, to pacify, to forgive, to pardon. Propitiation is what Jesus did for us in the past. Advocacy is what Jesus Christ does for us currently. That he is at the right hand of God as our defense attorney. And it is personal, it is complete, and it is total. Because John says in verse 2, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And then there's this. Other religions and belief systems offer sacrifices to appease their offended gods as a means of regaining their favor. But only the God of the Bible takes the initiative in sending himself in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, to appease his own offendedness. By the way, offendedness is not a word. I made it up. But listen to what John says. And we'll get to this, but John says in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he says, 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And this is why obedience and faithfulness matters. John says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. You see, Obedience and faithfulness are evidence. Their evidence acknowledging God's sovereignty in our lives, in my life, in your life. They are evidence that we are in relationship with God. Obedience and faithfulness demonstrates love and gratitude and praise to God. Because I think we all understand that we don't get to earn anything with God. Everything is a gift and everything is grace. The only reason why we are faithful and we are obedient to His commands is to show our love, to show our gratitude, and to give Him praise. But it also is evidence that we truly know Him. And it is evidence that we have meaningful relationships among ourselves. When we are obedient and faithful to God's commands, we end up having meaningful relationships together. And it also leads to blessing, of course. Because God could never bless disobedience and unfaithfulness. The word keep, as in keep my commandments, means to be conscious. It means to be alert. It means to be fully engaged. It means to be alive, awake. Like a ship captain who is always awake and alert watching the tide and the current and the weather to make sure that they do not be caught unaware. Now, negatively, Stated, John says in verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's strong words. And the truth is not in them. But positively stated, in verse 5 it says, But whoever keeps his words, or keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. One of, if not the most difficult thing to do, task in a marriage, is to keep the romance alive. Now, if we want to not lose that love and feeling, marriage counselors advise couples to do loving acts toward each other. And by doing loving acts, we will regain that loving feeling. Now, we may think that that's putting the cart before the horse. But it's interesting that the Ten Commandments is actually based on this same principle. The Ten Commandments is based on the principle that we act first and then the feelings will follow. First of all, if we act, then we will end up experiencing 
that loving feeling. But we, in our Western mindsets, have it backwards. We think we have to feel love, and then we act. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That's why the Bible and the commandments, the Ten Commandments, say over and over again that we are to do the commandments. To do the commandments. Because actions are followed by feelings, not vice versa. And so by keeping, by obedience, and by faithfulness, the love of God is perfected in us. Now, the second reason why obedience and faithfulness matters is because it's a sign of imitation. It's a sign of imitation. John says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. John's point is quite simple. John is saying that our lifestyle supersedes what we say. Imitating Jesus is letting our life speak first. Someone put it this way. Our, talk, our walk talks and our talk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Let me say it again. Our walk talks and our talk talks and our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Now say that ten times fast without saying something inappropriate. But we get the point. But that brings us to this. That brings us to love and hate. Now love and hate are two very strong words, aren't they? They are two words that are overused in our culture. And they are two words that have really lost their meaning. And the commandment that John, of course, is talking about is the commandment to love. So what is love? What is love? I mean, we know what love is, right? We know what love is. I mean, we know what love looks like. Uh, we know what love acts like. We know what love does, correct? Right? Well, I suppose that the people John was writing to probably thought the same thing, that they knew what love was or is. But in case they did not, and in case we do not, know what love is, John qualifies it for them and for us. Now, it is important to understand this. It is important to understand that John's concept of love is rooted in the biblical text, in God's love. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 in the Old Testament. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments dwell all the law and the prophets. And John says, this is not new. This idea is as old as the hills, as old as Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. But restless human beings that you and I are, 
We are enamored by whatever is new. We want the latest model. We are drawn to updates and upgrades and revised editions and improved versions. This morning at 6 o'clock, I got out of bed and did my routine, and one of the things I do is read off my iPad, and I noticed my iPad at an update. You know that red dot? You know when you got a, a text message and you got that red dot and it just keeps nag? Well, you know what? <clears throat> Unwisely and foolishly, I, I clicked on update now. Mm-hmm. To our ways of thinking, new ways are superior to old ways. And age, 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 except when it comes to antiques and wine, is a liability. Now, getting back to our text and to hate. Hate generally means to intensely dislike to passionately despise and to, dis de to detest someone or something. Now, most of us in the room and online, we don't need a definition of hate if we have experienced it in and of ourselves or we have experienced somebody else's hate toward us or we have ever seen hate in action. But in our text, hate means the opposite of love. To be hate-filled, John says, is to be love-less. To be love-less. Now, what's interesting, John is citing the commentators, if we can trust the commentators, our, John is addressing a situation in the church, the people that he's writing to in 1 John about a, a Christian brother who hates another Christian brother. And nothing is more unchristlike than to be hate-filled and love-less. Now back to our question, what is love? Well, first of all, it is not the shallow, sentimental, emotional love that is made popular by music or by romance novels or even by Hallmark Christmas movies. I know it's heartbreaking. Love is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. And, and, and love is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. John says that love is a choice. John says, and remember now what the Ten Commandments tells us to do, to do. He says, love is an act of the will. And he adds this, he says in verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother or sister is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother and sister abides in the light, and in him or her there is no cause for stumbling. The word no cause for stumbling comes from the Greek word scandalon. Does it sound familiar? It's where we get our English word scandal or scandalize. To be scandalized is to be offended. 
And John tells us that love is inoffensive. John's language is almost identical to Jesus' language in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Anybody here grow up in the 70s and 80s? It's not a sin. I did. But it may give the impression that you are old. We're just older, wiser more mature. Uh, There was a song called, They Will Know That We Are Christians By Our... Well, they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts, by our political persuasion, by our bumper stickers, or by the fish symbols on the back of our vehicles. I think not. Let me finish with this story. Corey Ten Boom, I know it's a strange name, but that was her name, Corey Ten Boom, was a Christian woman who lived in Holland during the Second World War, and uh, her and her family actually um, were Dutch, but they hid uh, Jews who were trying to escape the Nazis. Well, Corey and her family were found out, and they were caught. They were put in prison, and they suffered terribly at the hands of the Nazis. Her sister Betsy died in the same concentration camp where Corey herself had spent many years suffering traumatically and dramatically at the hands of the Nazis. When she was released at the end of the war, liberated, She decided that she was going to spend the rest of her life spreading the message of the love and forgiveness of Jesus to whoever would listen and to wherever she could have a voice. In her book, she tells this story of how the lack of repentance and forgiveness and love allow walls to exist between Christian and Christian and between Christians and God. Corey went to Munich, Germany, with her message of God's love and forgiveness, a message obviously at the end of the Second World War in a nation that desperately needed some message. After speaking, she says, in a basement room with solemn faces staring back at her, not quite daring to believe this unbelievable message she saw, coming toward her, down the center aisle, one of the cruelest guards in the prison camp where she was interned. In an instant, her mind was flooded with flashbacks of a uniform, of a visored cap with the skull and crossbones on it, and a large room with harsh lights and piles of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. 
And following that were these flood of emotions, the shame of walking naked past this man, this guard that was coming toward her. And as she was marching past this guard naked, in front of her was her sister Betsy, whose frail frame and ribs were sharp beneath the parchment skin. And Corey says, finally, this former prison guard stood in front of her and extended his hand out in friendship. A fine message, Fräulein, he declared. How good it is to know that as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And Corey continues the story in her own words, and she said, and I, who had spoken so glibly of love and forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand that was extended to me. She thought to herself, he couldn't remember me Surely he couldn't remember one prison because there had been thousands of women. But I remembered him. The leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The guard standing in front of her said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He said, I was a guard there. He said, but since that time, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And Corey said, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that prison. And could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? And she goes on, she said, it could not have been more than many seconds that he stood there with his hand out but it seemed to me like ours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And Corey said she knew that she had to to forgive because Jesus says that if we do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And she knew this not only as a command, but as utter necessity. She knew that other victims of Nazi brutality who were able to forgive their tormentors and were able to heal and get on with their lives no matter how bad the scars. And those who did not, could not. And she knew that forgiveness and love was an act of the will, not of her emotions. And so she prayed for help. And then she lifted her hand woodenly and mechanically, she writes. And as she did, the Lord filled her heart with love and forgiveness for this former captor. And warmth filled her heart. 
And tears filled her eyes, and she cried, I forgive you, my brother, with all my heart. I forgive you. Father, I thank you. We thank you for the love that is found in Jesus Christ. For the hope that is found in the love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The love that is found in the biblical text. And Father, today, I pray for every person that is sitting in this room and in the overflow in the chapel. For every person that's watching online today or will be watching online in the future who struggle with love and hate. Lord, I pray that you would replace their hate-filled hearts with your love. And that you will fill their loveless hearts with your grace. And I pray today, Father, for those of us that are wrestling with forgiveness. That are wrestling with either having to give forgiveness and you've pursued us on this but we still have not yet surrendered for those that have yet to offer forgiveness that is being asked. May you, like you did with Corey Ten Boom, may you fill their hearts, fill our hearts today with your love, the warmth of your love, so that we can forgive and we can move on and we can be healed. And for those this morning, Father, in this room, in the overflow, and those that are watching online, for those that need to ask for forgiveness, that, Lord, that this would be the day, this would be the week, this would be the season that we would request forgiveness. And we ask this today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, around the room and online and in the overflow in the upper chapel, I just want to give an opportunity very quickly. And it's going to take you some courage to do this. And we're not going to ask you to define it or qualify it or explain it. It's none of our business. It's yours and God's. Is there anybody in the room that you have hate in your heart for somebody else? I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to stand to your feet. Thank you for your honesty. Is there anybody in the room watching online or in the overflow that the best way to qualify and describe your heart is that you are loveless? Would you stand to your feet? Third, is there anybody in the room, anybody online, anybody in the overflow that you need to offer forgiveness to somebody? Would you stand to your feet? Don't be shy. Yes, thank you for your integrity. Others, 
You need to give forgiveness. And you've been pursued by it, by the Holy Spirit, for weeks and days and months, and maybe years and maybe decades. And today is the day God is saying, it's time now. And I know there's a process. I'm not naive. And finally, is there anybody in the room, online, or in the overflow? that you need to ask somebody for forgiveness. I want you to stand to your feet. Thank you. Thank you. I'll wait a moment. Now let's everybody stand to our feet. Father, Not that we loved you, but you loved us. And gave your son as the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you're a God who is generous and gracious and extravagant. And we're a people that needs that graciousness and that extravagance and that generosity and that graciousness. And so, Father, today, for those whose hearts are filled with hate, may they be filled with love. For those whose hearts are loveless, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with grace to do, to do loving acts. And Father, for those that need to give forgiveness, would you help them the way you helped Corey? And for those today who need to ask for forgiveness, that you would help them as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Say these words to your loud enough so that you can hear them in your ear and not too loud because, you know, we're not supposed to sing and push air out too much. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I believe that that statement is the statement that most people need to hear more than anything else. Do you know what the other one is? I love you. 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 That feels right, right? God bless you.